0: and Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to Australia on this day. My name's Michael Adams and today we're going back to Tuesday the 19th of August 1930. That was the day that what many skeptics said couldn't be done was done with the joining of the southern and northern half arches of the Sydney Harbour Bridge. The first two weeks of August 1930 wasn't the best time for Australia. The true extent of the Great Depression was becoming more apparent every day. Sydney's Labour Daily newspaper described the situation under the headline, Soldiers of Despair, Workless Army on the March. The accompanying article began, quote, A ragged army of hungry men tramping along every arterial road in the country testifies more eloquently than any words to the utter destitution of the cities from which they are radiating day after day. Making matters worse, Sir Otto Nehemiah, the buffoonish head of the Bank of England, had arrived in Australia recently to tell us how to set our economy in order which was basically cutting spending to the bone and throwing the working population to the wolves. Even beloved aviatrix Amy Johnson, who'd been fated all across Australia for becoming the first woman to fly from England to our shores, had revealed a disquieting aspect to her heroic character when she got back to London and lashed out saying, The press of Sydney I hate, loathe and detest. I think they are absolute rags. But Australians did have things to look forward to. One was the fifth test, with the national hope being that Don Bradman would continue to carve up the English bowlers and bring home the ashes for Australia. The other thing to look forward to was the joining of the two arms of the Harbour Bridge. Maybe. For the past two years, its twin steel half arches had grown panel by panel, and now they were ready to meet and become one mighty span. Or were they? Doomsayers, labelled Melancholy Prophets by the Sydney Morning Herald, subscribed to a mantra that the newspaper summed up as, The arch will never be joined. It will fall down and there will be no bridge. By the end of the first week of August 1930, construction of the arches had been finished. Each panel of its upper and lower cords put into place by creeper cranes manned by two plucky drivers, Vic Wilkinson and Jock King. Each of the half arches weighed 14,000 tons and was held back and up by 64 thick steel cables anchored into U-shaped tunnels cut into the sandstone on either side of the harbour. Now these cables, in groups of four, had to be loosened ever so gently, we're talking inches at a time, to lower the northern and southern arms. The goal was for them to meet and support their massive combined weight. But if things went wrong, if those melancholy prophets were right, the dream of a harbour bridge would become a nightmare. And a harbour crossing had been a dream since White Settlement began. In 1791, Dr. Erasmus Darwin, who'd go on to become Charles Darwin's grandfather, visited Sydney town and had a vision of its future grandeur. Old Erasmus set this down in a poem he called The Visit of Hope to Sydney Cove. He imagined broad streets and fine buildings and a quote proud arch, colossus-like that was going to span the harbour. In 1815, convict-turned-government architect Francis Greenway proposed the building of a bridge to Governor Lachlan Macquarie. Nothing came of this, nor of the other plans that were put forward over the rest of the century. These were characterised by Dr John Bradfield for the Daily Telegraph as quote. Floating bridges, swing bridges, high level bridges, subaqueous bridges, tunnels, and subaqueous tube tunnels. Of course, it was Dr. Bradfield who in 1913 became Sydney's chief engineer for the construction of the city's railway tunnel loop, an electric suburban network, and a harbour bridge big and sturdy enough to carry trains and cars over the waters. The Great War got in the way of Dr. Bradfield's Great Plan, but in 1922, the New South Wales Parliament approved his planned bridge. Rather than a multiple arch affair or one of those floating or swinging designs, the harbour was to be conquered with a massive single steel arch based on the Hell Gate Bridge in New York City. Work began in 1923. On the 7th of August 1930, before the arms of the bridge began to be lowered, the gap between the lower cords of the southern and northern arms was just 3 feet 6 inches. Three wooden planks were laid across this space, some 500 feet above the water, and Lawrence Ennis, Director of Construction, became the first person to walk across the Sydney Harbour Bridge. The evening news put a long shot photo on the front page, this tiny figure dwarfed in the sky by the mighty arch. A brave Sydney Mail photographer, though, got a far better picture by perching up and behind Mr. Ennis on the upper cord, showing his crossing and the dizzying abyss into which he risked plunging. A Sydney Mail reporter mused, quote, Only now that the arch of the Great Bridge is nearing completion, are people beginning to recognize the intrinsic beauty of the magnificent structure. Beautiful, yes, but was it going to come crashing down? The Labor Daily gave voice to the doubters and provided reassurance in an 11th of August article headlined, There are many who cry, suppose they slip, bridge arches, but they won't, say experts. The bridge falling down would be a spectacular disaster and the end of a dream held for more than a century. But more materially, it could prove fatal for the already severely wounded Australian economy. 28,000 tons of mangled iron blocking the harbour would take years to remove, and during this period, many of Australia's most vital cargo wharves would be out of action. But the engineers, as Labor Daily reported, quote, "...merely poo-poo suggestions that an accident of such magnitude is even possible, let alone probable." Over the next week, the slacking of the cables continued and the arms slowly came down and came closer together. This progress keenly observed by the vast number of Sydney siders who crossed the harbour each morning and night by ferry. By Monday the 18th of August, the gap was down to mere inches, and the massive pilot pivots on the southern arm could be loosely rested in the corresponding sockets on the northern side. Yet the size of the gap and the alignment of the arms was now as much down to the sun, 93 million miles away, as it was to the cables loosening fractions of an inch at a time. By day, the sun's warmth caused the bridge to expand, which brought the arms closer. But after sunset, the winter chill made them contract again and move further apart. At 4pm Tuesday, the gap between the two arms was down to three-eighths of an inch. And that night, the engineers and their workers would again have to balance the contraction due to cold with the loosening of the cables. The pilot pivots, though, were now so deeply in place they wouldn't again be pulled apart. Lawrence Ennis and Ralph Freeman, credited by many including himself as the bridge's true designer, were relieved that their work was now all but done. And that night, 90 years ago today, the weather was warmer than usual. With less contraction to worry about, Dr. Bradfield and Messrs Ennis and Freeman decided the time was right. From 10 o'clock, in the glare of arc lights, the final loosening of the cables for the bridge's lower cord was carried out. Between 11.30 and 11.45, the pivot pins thrust entirely into their sockets and bolts were fastened. Sydney Harbour had been bridged. The Daily Pictorial newspaper reported, No ceremony marked the great performance, but it was a happy group of experts who, by the glare of floodlights, saw the spans come together. As quoted in David Eliard and Richard Raxworthy's 1982 book, The Proud Arch, Lawrence Ennis would later recall the moment this way, When we realised what had just taken place, we were so overawed with the mightiness of it all that we did not speak. I, for one, could not, and I think each was conscious of the feeling of the other. The silence to me was most impressive, and when I could trust myself to speak, I broke the silence saying, well boys, that's that, and thank God she is home. The Sydney Morning Herald reported the next day, quote, The Arch has been joined. The dream that Sydney has dreamed for nearly a 100 years is a reality of steel and concrete. Hurricanes may blow and prophets bite their nails. The Arch is locked. The bridge will remain. Oddly, Sydney's afternoon tabloid The Sun gave its front page top story to Don Bradman's ongoing adventures in the fifth test, which wasn't over yet. The bridge was relegated to the inside pages, and even then, the article was a curious lament for the lost rectangle of sky between the two arches that Sydney Siders had supposedly loved looking at. But the Daily Pictorial newspaper got it right, giving its whole front page over to a photo of the magnificent engineering marvel, headlined Huge Spans of Bridge Joined at Midnight. That day, a Union Jack flag flew above the Creeper Crane on the north side of the bridge, while an Australian flag flew above the Creeper Crane on the south. The symbolism was that Britain, via the contracting company Dorman Long, had from the Northern Hemisphere in the Southern Hemisphere built the world's greatest single-span bridge. As Peter Spirit wrote in his 1982 book, Sydney Harbour Bridge, A Life, the British press would give credit to Britain for this feat of imagination, engineering and construction. Quote, That Australians had thought up the idea, raised the loan funds, manufactured much of the materials and physically erected the structure, was all too readily forgotten. That said, he noted that Australians might not have minded because most people thought of themselves as British anyway. The Labour Daily, at least, was stirred to nationalist sentiment. Quote, The successful joining of the Harbour Bridge arch marks the achievement of one of the greatest feats of modern times. The article continued, Proud cheers rose from many lips as eyes, turning to the bridge, caught sight of what had been accomplished by Australian workmen. That night, electric lights were strung right across the bridge, lighting up the flags against the dark sky, and ferry passengers, drivers in cars on punts, and people on the harbour foreshores cheered and applauded. The harbour had been bridged, but the Sydney Harbour Bridge was far from complete. It'd be another three weeks of gradual cable loosening until the upper cords were joined. Then, Having built the arches out until they met, the creeper crane drivers would have to work backwards to lower the hanging deck that was to carry trains, cars and pedestrians. We'll take a look at how that worked out in another episode. I'm Michael Adams and you've been listening to Australia on This Day. Make sure you're subscribed to get every episode as soon as it's released. If you've enjoyed the show, I'd love it if you could leave a review and rating at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're after more tales from our fascinating history, check out my other show, Forgotten Australia. This podcast was produced in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. Thanks for listening and catch you tomorrow.